The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now a man to be a man has to be in Christ. And Bart says, you're all, you're all, you're all. I am. And, and somebody said, he's inconsistent. First he was saying this extreme thing. Now he's saying... The point is, he's been absolutely consistent on this point. He's always been dialectical. You cannot have nominalism without having realism. They are involved in one another. As we said the first hour, you never have irrationalism except with rationalism, and never rationalism except with irrationalism. Dialectical thinking of a modern sort, and most notably theological dialecticism, is the climax of all forms of apostate thinking, namely that you reject the notion that God has directly revealed himself in history, that to you is what Bart calls thus profana as gibt. That is the profane idea of givenness, thus profana as gibt, as gibt eine Offenbarung. You've got a Bible, you possess it, you have a confession, you have uh, the Heidelberg Catechism and you the, the Belgian Confession, and then you kick Dr. Hilkering out of the church because he doesn't believe that, then you get so cocky or you have the Westminster Confession and you throw somebody out because he doesn't believe that. Or you have in this country, you put people out of the church like they did in the Christian Reformed Church, like Herman Hooksman. Well, he says, what we must have is this dialectical openness. Now, this was already in the book on Romans. He says, God speaks straight down from heaven no connection with liberalism which wanted to make plain to the cultural consciousness of the world what we believe he found he says an answer to his questions by listening to the bible well however in this book which has that nominalism that Berkauer saw in it but it had in it also this element this universalism which Berkauer didn't see there it's, it's as clear as crystal there it's there today it's there to be seen for anybody that wants to see it. In other words, you could, you could believe in Plato. You didn't have to know anything about the Bible. You didn't have to hear about Jesus of Nazareth to be in the Christ, don't you see? You are, it's a Christ mysticism. Well, now, that doctrine has now come to its climax, and he is now emphasizing this realistic side of it. And it's no marvel that Brunner, whose pendulum doesn't swing as widely as Bart's, but who has the pendulum suspended from the same fulcrum, who is as much opposed to the traditional orthodox view as is Bart, and they're both equally opposed to it for the same reason, that it has a theology of a direct revelation in history. And that to them is the acme of, of conceit. You've got a bank account and you're trusting in that system of doctrine, and in a Bible that is a literal truth, and you have it and others don't have it, and you gloat over that. You are the blessed possessors. Now, they want to have a Christianity which is all-inclusive, which inherently is universal, and which, in the nature of the case, envelops all men. 
Now, how do you harmonize that with the doctrine of election? You know, the first book that was written in this country on Barleyanism was written by Zerbe, a, a Lutheran. And he said, oh, we must have nothing of this Barleyanism. That's new Calvinism again. Well, that was a total misunderstanding of the situation. It isn't Calvinism. Nothing remotely resembling it. It's Emmanuel Kantism. Now, therefore, you can understand that on this basis, all men are reprobate. And in this case, therefore, all men are elect in Christ. And all of this came to a rather funny expression in my own experience. Did I tell you that, Jim, or didn't I? I guess I told Martin Smith. I'll just tell you here while the others aren't here. I heard, I went to Princeton Seminary to hear Dr. Bart when he was there in this country, you know, a few years ago. You remember, Mr. Bodie? And uh, I went on Monday and on Tuesday and again on Friday with Dr. Stonehouse at the time. We went up to Princeton University Chapel. And on Friday night, Bill Jones, who was, I think I spoke to you that admission, and I told you this story, so I'm getting old and I like to tell the same stories over again. Uh, <laughs> so at the end of the meeting, uh, just before the meeting, Bill Jones told me that he had seen Bach before time and had asked, given him a ride to Princeton. And uh, he said, I know Van Til. Oh, you know Van Til? You know Van Til? Tell him he's a bad boy. He's not going to heaven. That's what Bach said in the afternoon. That was reprobation, you see. But then in the evening, then in the evening, Dr. Stonehouse and I met him, and, so, and they were just walking out, Dr. Dr. McCord, the president of Princeton, and Bart, and someone else, and this other man said to him, here's Dr. Van Til. Are you Van Til? Are you Van Til? Three times he said that. You said some bad things about me, but I forgive you, I forgive you. Now, that was the final syllable, you see. I'm elect positively now in Christ. Don't you see? Uh, I'm going to heaven by the grace of Karl Barth. <laughs> because, don't you see, I'm the worst man there is. From Barth's point of view, he called me a mentioned fresher, a cannibal. Not personally, but he did, in the introduction to one of his books, say that things were getting much better. After the appearance of Das Grosses Buch, great book, The Triumph of Grace. He said there was a time in Holland when all these reformed people in Holland were against him. They were against, throwing him out. But now, since the writing of this great book, he says, the change had come over Holland for the better. And even American fundamentalists, you can talk to them. You see, people like Barnhouse, and, uh, and I'm not sure, I think Buswell too, but various ones went to Switzerland and they went to see Car Carl Barth, you see. And they were always nice and friendly. And Barnhouse asked him, are you pre or are you ah or post? And when Bart says he was pre, then Barnhouse is happy and puts in his paper, now let's pray for Bart, he's on the way. Uh, well, of course, that was an absolute, total misunderstanding of Bart. So he said it was all getting better, ah, but dimension fresher. Now, what is a mention fresher? Anybody knows there's German... Don't talk, Jim. I don't want you to say it. Right. Now, they are accepted because you can't do anything with them. They're cannibals. And when they see you, they'll eat you if they can possibly do it. Some bicycle, some bicycle, for instance, one of them, one of these men from Fresher, Habkisach has recently said that he was the worst heretic of all ages. 
Now, I didn't quite say that. All that I said was that people today could be bigger heretics than they could be in the early church because they've been, because Immanuel Kant has lived. That is to say, you have a deeper, more self-conscious commitment to subjectivism than you've ever had in the whole history of the church, and you have a more absolutistic uh, turning around of Christian teaching in terms of that wrong approach. Well, at any rate, that's what he said. Now, don't you see, this is the dialectical principle, and that's election. Now, this is, you see, how you can have the doctrine of election, and you can be reformed, and then you can be a universalist. Now, this was grand stuff at Princeton Seminary. You see, they needed this just at this particular time. When I was there, then people believed the doctrine of election in the traditional point of view. Voss did, Wilson did, Alice did, Dr. Machen did, all of them did, who were my teachers there, in the traditional sense. But then came Dr. Swamer, and then came Dr. Kaising, and then came the others of the next generation, the Auburn Affirmationists, and they wanted to be reformed. It's a fine tradition to be in, in the dignified Presbyterian tradition. And so they had speeches about how wonderful it would be now that we've had this reorganization. Spear went all over stump speeching. And so did Zwamer, that we must now can be better reformed people than we before. And then, of course, they used this, this Bardian approach, and Dr. Hendry now so forcefully does, and Dr. Dowie and Trinterup. I don't know that he's a Princeton, I guess not, but anyway, he's one of these new confession people. But Dowie and, and Henry were at Princeton. Well, now, what they now, they now have so completely metamorphosed Princeton, in name they're still Presbyterian. Oh, we believe in doctrine of election. But then, of course, what they now mean by election is this dialectical concept of election, which is not only is consistent with, but requires universalism. Don't you see? Therefore, the reprobation is only a, a dialectical opposition. He's got about 50 pages on Judas Iscariot to the effect that he stands for what he calls the openness of, openness of preaching. In other words, if you're in heaven, everybody's going to heaven, but if you get tired of being there, you can leave. The door's always open. And in other words, you must not have a uh, a universalism of a preconscious deterministic sort, but you must have a determinism in which reality is open, stays open, and that's what you've got out of the philosophy of Kant, the heart and center of which is commitment to pure contingency. Don't you see? Now, the application of Kant's philosophical principles to the scriptures enable you to be a reformed Christian, to believe in election, and in reprobation, both kinds of election. And yet, of course, believe everything that modern science says, everything that modern philosophy says, and believe nothing what the historic creeds have said, nothing. And here Gordon Clark is absolutely right when of Henry and of the New Confession, he says, what do they believe? Precisely nothing, except that's too good a thing to say. You should say they believe the wrong thing, not nothing. That would be fine if they believe nothing, but they believe the wrong thing. Now, that is unfortunately not brought out by Berkauer, and hence the confusion, worse confounded. And Carl Henry doesn't know what to do with Karl Barth, and even Gordon Clark doesn't know. He's writing a book on the theological method of, of Dr. Barth, of Karl Barth. But Karl Barth can be as heretical as, as you wish, 
as he wishes, as he is, that doesn't seem to bother him, just so he lives up to the law of contradiction. And he doesn't do too good a job of that, but he isn't nearly as bad as it was Bruner, as it is Bruner, and the, or as some other irrationalist. But so Bart passes, I guess, maybe with 76 degrees or something to that effect. Well, and then they chop up Karl Barth, and they say, this piece is all right. We'll say 10 chunks. We'll give them 10 on this. We'll give them 8 here. We'll give them 0 there. We'll give them 5 there. And then sum it all up. There were articles in what was called the Calvin Forum some years ago, a magazine. Christian Reformed people wrote in it. Dr. The Reverend E.J. Tannis wrote an article. And he says, well, I think Bart is much closer to us. I mean, Brunner is much closer to us, that is, Reformed people, than Bart is. Because Brunner believes in common grace and in creation ordinances and in natural revelation. And Bart doesn't, don't you see? Well, my friend, good friend William Childs Robinson says, nine, Bart is much better than Brunner because Bart is much more biblical and he uh, is much more stresses the doctrine of this point and of that point. He is much more. He, he is somewhat more eschatological and we're more historical, but it's more and less, you see. Well, you cannot possibly deal with Bach that way and deal fairly with him. You take him in toto or you leave him in toto. And he has said all the way through and at every point of his development that he does not want the historic Christian position, that that is blessed possessor Christianity, beati posidentes, and they are the worst. He was in Holland when in Holland the Reformed churches had just put Dr. Kierkegaard out of the church because he had rejected the historicity of the Genesis account. And then the ministers at this conference asked him, uh, Dr. Bart, what do you think of this? Ah, he says, Ein sprechende Schlange kann ich so wenig wie jemand anders glauben. Aber wollte nicht die liebe Freunde der sprechende Schlange lieber hören, was die Schlange gesprochen hat. Now, a speaking serpent. <laughs> I can't believe that in any more than any other sensible man can. But wouldn't it be better if the friends of the speaking serpent, you people, Dutch re Reformed people, friends of it, because you're sticking for the literacy and historicity of the paradise narrative, including the serpent. Well, wouldn't it be better if you paid a little more attention to what the serpent said rather than whether there was a serpent? Now, you see, the whole story is told in that one sentence, you see. The story is figurative. It's a symbolical idea that evil has something in is come into the heart of man and is bad and is original. Einsprechende Schlange. Who can believe in Einsprechende Schlange? Well, then when he was in Hungary one time and he was lecturing there in Hungary and somebody asked him, Dr. Bart, what about the pagan masses? Are they lost? Are there all kinds of people in this world? He says, das riecht nach Holland. He says, that smells like Holland. And he wasn't thinking of the cows, particularly, that are in Holland, in great numbers. Now, what he was thinking of is the Reformed Ministers Conference, who were insisting that you have to believe certain doctrines and in the direct and final revelation of God in history. And if you exclude anybody from salvation, das riechen, that smells like Holland. He says, I can't stand that smell. Well, now don't you see? At every stage, at every point. Now, 
How is it possible, please explain to me, that a man like Berkauer, who knows this and who understands this, can then say, oh, you must criticize Bart on this point and on that point, but in Allgemeinen, in general, I'm sehr guter Mann. Dr. Machen used to have a little story. I'm taking, wasting a little time this afternoon since the most important people are absent. Oh, no, I mean, I mean the most important people are present. Uh, he had a little story to this effect. It was in Germany. There was a man who said, well, this fellow is a pretty good fellow. He killed his mother and murdered his father. But in general, a decent sort of fellow. See, perhaps sein Vater totgeschlagen und sein Mutter vermord, aber im Allgemeinen ein sehr guter Mann, see? Now, you can kill your father and murder your mother and still be a pretty decent sort of a fellow, you know. Well, that's the way with Karl Barth. He can kill the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation through blood atonement, aber im Allgemeinen ein sehr guter reformatorischer Theolog, see? still pretty decent sort of Reformation theologian. You see, all of that doesn't make a grain of sense to me, gentlemen. I honor Bach, uh, Berkauer for being a great theologian and all of that, but I can't just take this because to me it isn't right to do it. Now, then in the third place, I'll come back to Bach later. There's much more to Bach than that. But then in the third place on this question of scripture, now, in the first place, he wrote a book. Do you know that book, Jim? You have that one on the one that he wrote first on scripture? Yeah, the Hensler Scripture That one you are familiar with, no doubt. Well, in it he speaks of the distinctiveness of the Reformed conception of scripture, as I said this morning, because of the Reformed theology. It alone can have a distinct view of scripture because it alone has a philosophy of reality where God controls everything. Well, now, a few years ago, he wrote an article in a Dutch magazine, Reformed Theological Journal, in which he dealt with the Synod of Dort. Now, you know what the Synod of Dort did. 16, 18, 19, they dealt with the Armenians and the remonstrance of the day, and they excluded them because the remonstrance were reintroducing really to in effect, Roman Catholic principles. They hadn't been clean, clean separated from Roman Catholic principles of the freedom of man, of the autonomy of man. And they wouldn't submit to the biblical teaching that man is elected by grace and that he must be taken out, that he has no ability of his own. Well, that was the issue. So that, the question here is sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Well, now, some years ago, Berkhauer defended this without any qualifications. But now, more recently, he says, oh, they meant so well, these Dort, fathers of Dort. But they had only causal categories in terms of which to explain this teaching. Now, thereby hangs a tale, which we'll come back to. This is the world of cause, in conscience, the I-it dimension, the world of science, the world of necessity the world in which you can predict what must be and what will be. But here, according to Kant, is the world of freedom, the freedom of personality, of person-to-person -person confrontation. Here's where God is, the big person, which meets the little persons, and the little persons meet one another in terms of the big person. 
And there is no direct revelation of God expressed in this. You remember, and we'll deal with Kant also very shortly, that is to say, you cannot speak, says Kant, of God having caused this world, because cause is an intracosmical cons- uh, category. I told you about the chicken that had the duck eggs under it, and the little ducks go off there, and the chicken bound to terra firma, says cluck, 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 and sees the little chicks go off, her little chicks, as she thinks, their little ducks actually, go off in the water, as alo, as alo anabasis, as alo genos, jump into another category. Well, therefore, you know nothing of a God who is the first cause. You know nothing of a God who is the absolute being. You know nothing of a God who has a purpose with the world. Those ideas of God and as the origin, they must all be expressed in person to person, in personal language, not in causal language. Now, that's the modern approach, don't you see? The world of causality and the world of freedom, the world of personality, opposed to one another. Now, it's good enough, you see, to say we are having a problem when, as the fathers of Dart did, as we all, all people have had, as Calvin had, with God being the primary cause or the ultimate cause, and man being the derivative or the, the finite cause, the proximate cause, that's how... Calvin discusses them. That's the English translation from the Latin. Ultimate cause and proximate cause. And Pigius, who denies what Calvin teaches, of course says, uh, we are my proximate cause, my will, is the ultimate starting point. I can change things, and I'm the one that does things independently of the counsel of God. Now, it is, of course, not possible to penetrate how God's ultimate control of all things of including all the things of this world, of space and time, what they call the causal world. What we as Christians mean by cause is that God, by his providence, controls it. That's all we should mean by cause. We mustn't start out by assuming that we mean by this, the same thing by cause that Kant means. Then we're, all, then we're all gone. Mr. Smith, we went hastily over this matter of Berkauer's chains on Vatican, and then we went over his change of attitude between his first and his later book on Karl Barth. Now I'm just beginning on what he does or did, was doing with respect to scripture, beginning with his article in in which he deals with the uh, Senate of Dort. And you, he used to defend the Senate through and through without any qualifications. In this article, he apologizes for the church fathers. Now, he does this because, he says, they had only causal concepts with which to express something that is inherently in the nature of the case, not in the causal realm, don't you see, that cannot be expressed. Now, this is identical language with that of the neo-Orthodox. Now, I am not saying right now that it that Berkauer cannot use that language if only he will tell us how he uses it differently, don't you see? How he distinguishes it, his use of it and his meaning of it from the neo-orthodox. What the neo-orthodox mean by the distinction of the I-thou and the I-it dimension is absolutely destructive of the gospel 
because in this world of ordinary history, which they call history, there cannot be such a thing as a death and the resurrection of Christ, which isn't already causally connected with everything else and predetermined in advance, and not by God who is back of things, but by an impersonal law. Well, don't you see, if you took that meaning of the word cause, the way Kant establishes it and the way it is being used constantly by the neo-Orthodox theologians, that would be totally destructive. Now, that is the reason why Barth wants to take the Christian teachings of the death and the resurrection out of this causal world, you see. Otherwise, he knows that from his point of view, they won't have any significance. Now, for Barth, the resurrection means something that... Yes, he says, it may be something happened over there. In his book on Romans, he says the real resurrection did not happen there at all, but happened in Geschichte, Urgeschichte, which he calls this Numenor realm of Kant. Now, this is, I want to get back to this when we deal more fully with Barth. I'm just now interested in pointing out how that a man like Birkhauer, if he wants to use this new terminology... Certainly it's his obligation then, so long as he means to teach the historic Reformed faith, that then he should tell us how he uses it and what he means by it, which he doesn't. Now, therefore, on the Bardian basis, you could not have a transition from wrath to grace in ordinary history. Don't you see? Things like that don't happen here. What happens here is causally necessitarianly related items and the resurrection and the ascension if, if they are to be real, they may be real in a sense, but they must be primarily real as in that other world. Now, don't you see now then what Berkauer now does in this article in which he deals with the Senate of Dort is to apologize for a causal statement such as Calvin made, primary cause, secondary, or proximate cause, ultimate cause and proximate cause which Calvin uses in relation to Pigius, with whom he is arguing. Now, then he goes on from criticism of Dart to Chalcedon. Now, notice it's getting broader. Here's first a single, one individual Dutch confession. Now you're getting to the question of what any confession is. The historic Chalcedon Creed, the most centrally important in a sense, the two person, the two natures of Christ. You remember what the Chalcedon Creed is? Asagutos, atraptos, adiaratos, acoristos. Here's the human nature, there's the divine nature, unchangeable and, and not mixed and yet permanently related. For Kant says that's bad, that's awful bad. We got to have a God who does change into the opposite of himself who is not bound by eternal changeless beings, who's not like a mountain lake up there, the water which can't come down here. We've got to have a God who comes down. And it's bad to have a human nature that is unchangeable, that is, always retains its qualities, because we've got to have a human nature that permits of being subsumed or assumed into divine nature. Salvation is being lifted up into divinity, participation, into the very heart and center of what he calls the aseity of God. Well, now, this is what Bart means, and this is how he, what he says, when he actualizes the incarnation, and therefore he 
reinterprets the whole Chalcedon Creed. Now, what Burkhauer does with Chalcedon is not by any means the same thing, of course, that Bart does with it. He hasn't swallowed Bart hook, line, and sinker or anything like it. He's no doubt evangelical and, and wants to be, but he apologizes for the Greek categories that have been used, the static categories that the church has used, the way the, the fathers of Dort are using causal categories to express and to defend the reformation, the reformed faith over against Arminianism. So he says the early church used static Greek categories of substance and, and causation in order to defend the absoluteness of God. Now that's not the way it can be done. Now that's all I can say about it now, but I want to just say that in passing in order now to indicate what he does with respect to Scripture. First Dark, then Chalcedon, then Scripture. Now he has, in this series of dogmatical studies, he has always followed what he calls the correlation methodology, had correlati motif, faith and revelation. Now it is a very interesting thing that in this book which was published Ex Audita Berbi in honor of Berkhauer, a festschrift, a festschrift in his honor like they do in Europe, uh, people that are 70 or 75 or 80 if they have done a lot of writing or something then somebody gets the bright idea there ought to be a festschrift in somebody's honor like that. Well, They've done that for Doryware, for Volanoven. They did it. They have done it now for others, and they've done it for Berkauer. Well, that's fine. He certainly is worthy of it if anybody is. But the interesting thing is that a man by the name of Berkhoff, who is in the state church, the Hervorendekerk, which is the traditional church, Hervorendekerk, which is the more liberal church from which the the churches of Abram Kuyper in 1886 and so forth separated on the issue of modernism and so forth that a man who is now in this Hervornikek who is a Bardian and many in that Hervornikek have for long been Bardian don't you see naturally that was a field for Bardianism of white unto the harvest for Bardianism uh, I told you this morning how uh, this man from Hermigen, Heikema, introduced Bardianism, and then there was a there's a fellow by the name of Nitrick who wrote a book of small dogmatics, Kleine Dogmatik. It was just full of Bardianism, and they have boasted of what an improvement has come about in this church because people have begun to read the Bible. They formed Bible clubs. Well, I'm not denying that maybe there has been improvement in that sense, and I'm thankful for it if there has. But the point is but it isn't Christianity. Now, this man has a book on history recently. It's in English, too. I forget the exact title. But it's through and through Bardian. Now, he was asked to write a, an article for this ex auditor verbi, and he writes an article, and he praises Berkhauer, and he's a fine man, he says, a wonderful man, and marvelous works he's written. But notice, he says, the chains in this man. First, he was on the doctrine of the script, the Heilige script, he was as orthodox as you make him. He was like Bavink. And he was as strict as Bavink. He held, he didn't mention Warfield that I know, but it meant to all intents and purposes, he held the same point of view 
that the historic Reformed churches have always held in that early book of his. But, says this man Berkhoff, he says, he had this correlation motif according to which he made faith and revelation correlative to one another. And that meant it was bound to loosen up. You see, there wasn't going to be any more such a thing as a static insistence on revelation, no matter whether you believed it or didn't believe it. Faith had nothing to do with it in the traditional, old-fashioned sense. The book is there, and the book is final, and that's all. But now, he says, Berkhauer has always written this whole series of dogmatical studies, and as he has continued, this method has gradually made him change his point of view and when he got to the book on election, which is true, in this series of dogmatic studies, there is a book, one, the Verkissing Cross. I think that's been translated already. Now, election, now there you already have a difference of approach similar to the Bardianism. Now, therefore, he says he is bound to change, and he actually has a different view of election and if you now read Romans, uh, and there is a difference of exegesis, for instance, Romans, there is that difference even in uh, Dr. Uh, Riverbus from Campen, and Paulman has had a more or less of a different approach. This man, de Graaf, who was lecturing at our seminary a couple of weeks ago, he says, if you would read the commentary on Romans 8 by Professor Murray, and you would read the commentary on the same chapter. I think, now, I didn't know that Paulman has a commentary, does he? I wonder if it didn't mean Ritterbus. Maybe he meant Ritterbus. But he meant to say that there was a very different, different, great difference between the commentaries that are now being written in the Netherlands under the influence of a change of approach. And that involves a different view of election. Now, we just saw a moment ago that what Bart means by election is that dialectical view. You can have reprobation and and uh, election and their nevertheless it's universal salvation because the reprobation does not refer to persons it refers only to the lower aspect of man and the higher aspect is election toward grace now with that difference of approach the first stage then there's a new second stage he says in which he applies this principle more consistently but the last stage is that of existentialism now this I'm this is the quotation. This is what this man Berkhoff says about Berkhauer. Now, Berkhauer didn't, Berkhauer didn't like this article of Berkhoff. And he says, I bailed him up. That's the Dutch expression for saying, I might call him on the telephone and have him opgebeld and uh, say, uh, what do you mean by this? Oh, I'm friendly as possible, friendly as fashion, you know, because... After all, he wrote in his Feshrift, and that was wonderful. But the point is that, nevertheless, it is true, and you have right here, right now in your library, in The Torch and Trumpet, the current issue by Dr. Pransma of Canada, an article on what is happening to the Netherlands churches. And if you just pick up that article, then that article will mean something more to you, I think, in in, the pick, in view of this totality change, there is a sea change has overcome Berkhauer in the sense that now he stresses what he formerly called his own view. Now he calls that a formal 
view of inspiration. And now poor Warfield gets it on the head. And that's now fundamentalist. You see, if you've got to have a scapegoat, the fundamentalist can always serve as a scapegoat, don't you see, the fundies. And now, in other words, he, he says you... The Roman Catholics had a formal view of Scripture. They said they believed in the infallibility of Scripture, but meanwhile, they believed in tradition. Now, what he himself formerly believed to be the proper view of Scripture, he now calls a formal view of Scripture, don't you see? And that we must actually look at the content, the scopus, the scope of the teaching of Scripture. And that's the thing to be concerned about. And when you look at that, you're less concerned about verbal exactness and so forth. Now, that is a bit vague, and I'm not clear on it myself. If you will read that article, you will see that Thompson has difficulty with it, but he points out very severe difficulties in Berkhauer, how he can make uh, stress what he calls the situation principle, and that they are speaking to that present situation with this purpose in mind, and that therefore they do not have a formal view of scripture and that therefore you must not hold people uh, to uh, to this abs- uh, absolute abstract strict verbalism and you mustn't be too hard on people when like Bada and that's what Promsma brings out these younger men Bada and Kola and Carthard who are now younger men in the free university and have much looser view of scripture and Promsma says well Certainly, Berkow knows all about their views. He doesn't in the least criticize them, and that's true. Whom he does criticize is Dr. Clowney, president of Westminster Seminary. In what Clowney said in his little pamphlet on the, on the Confession of 67, and he, he doesn't have a word of criticism about the Confession of 67, but he does have criticism of Clowney, who criticizes the Confession of 67 because he says Clowney is reactionary because he holds a more formalistic view, see. Yes, Mr. Smith. Uh, I remember maybe not the only thing they call it too, but I believe it was George Knight that ran into a book dealer that confronted Professor Erkar with that first book on scripture. Oh, I see. He said, Would you look would be willing to have a free print then? No. No. No, I do you remember that? I think he you see he doesn't want formally to recall I mean, withdraw or retract. No, I don't suppose he would. But you see, that's the way with Karl Barth. See, Karl Barth has virtually disowned his Reimerbrief and his first dogmatic, his uh, black dogmatics too. But he's never retracted them or so. He, he has made points in his later work where he says, now I see this differently and so forth. But Beckhauer scarcely does that, you see. Oh, of course he does. But it'll be, it, you see, these articles of Pramsma, he sent them to the Christian Reform publication, The Banner, and when the, a series of articles, I think four or five of them, and they wouldn't print them. They had printed one, and then they said the rest will not be printed. The publication committee refused the publication of the rest of the articles till the people at the Free University, of course, including Berkauer, would have, have a chance to reply. Well, I showed that to Mr. Woolley. Well, he says we have the old church tactics again, that is, bossism in the church. Well, fortunately, there is a magazine, Torch and Trumpet, that will print it, but of course it doesn't have the wide circulation. 
as it would, but it's a very good thing. Pramsma is an A number one fellow. He had a very bad accident a few years ago, was badly hurt, but he's recovering, and he taught church history a little while at Calvin, but he couldn't keep it up. Now he's back in a church in Canada, but he's writing these things, and he keeps up with what's going on. And it is worth our while to know who, who does that sort of thing, and where they are, and what they're doing, and where they're doing it. Any question? Now, I didn't mean to take up this whole hour by this, but we'll get back to Augustine, and then we'll get tomorrow rapidly over the Middle Ages, and then we'll get to Kant and the modern picture, I hope, tomorrow, too.